This is Fans on the Run, a podcast made by, for, and about Beatles fans. And now, here's your host, Ethan Alladay. All right, hello, 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 everyone. Welcome back to Fans on the Run. Not the best Beatles podcast, but an incredible simulation. You know, I I am very, very excited about our guest today. If If you know anything about Beatles history, and especially the history of tribute bands and that kind of thing... Uh, you will definitely recognize our next guest's name, voice, and face, who he might have borrowed from somebody. Uh, and now I go to the action note. Mystery guest, how would you describe yourself? A man who was born to play another man at another time and did it for so many years that a lesser man would have forgotten who he was, but I never really did. So, uh... This is Mitch Weissman speaking in a pseudo-English voice, because I really can't stop it. <laughs> and now for the introduction I have written, which yes. will probably be less grandiose. I just made that one up, so I'm not grandiose. Yeah. <laughs> no, that, that's, that's yeah. good. You know, He's an incredible talent who is a, a member of the original Broadway cast of Beatlemania, hence the pun at the top of the yeah. show. He also appeared on the soundtrack LP and the movie adaptation of the show. He's done extensive live and studio work with about anyone you could think of. Uh, I don't even know where to start, so that's why I didn't list any names specifically. He has a base. He will travel. He is Mitch Weissman. <laughs> that's very good. That's great. Mitch, how are you today? I'm good, Ethan, and how are you? I, you know what? Even though I do this show, no one really asks me that. Well, I don't know why. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's no. people are, uh, you know, when you're brought up to, when you're brought up to say hello to people, I mean, when they say something to you, I ask them the same question back. I'm like, how are you? I'm fine. How are you? So, but yeah, it's interesting. I, I am doing fantastic. Good. fantastic. This interview's happening. So I'm, I'm. Yeah, it's better. It's so right far now. so good. This is great. Yeah. So far so good. Uh, you know. Don't don't keep your expectations too high. <laughs> you didn't listen to too much of that show, did you? Uh, I did not because I didn't have any time to do it. But it was it was good. It was it was it was good. And you, you're very good. And then Ken was very good. Um, my expectations are always they're always high, but I'm never disappointed because you never know what's gonna happen. Mm -hmm. That's really it. You know, this could, this could take any direction. It's true. You know, we're, we're having fun so yeah. far, so I think this will be I good. I think that's the key. First question I want to ask you. As we all know, Paul McCartney was replaced in 1966 <laughs> after allegedly dying in the car crash. Are you, in fact, the original Paul McCartney? Well, I'd have to be a little bit older to be the original Paul McCartney. Um, but uh, no, so that would make me a no. But uh, am I related to William Campbell? I can't say. There was a another great Canadian yeah, yeah. from what I've yeah, read. Really, I guess I, I never knew that. But he, my, uh, when we were doing Beatlemania and we were in rehearsals, my friend Kevin Mc Beatlemania, what's that? Well, you'll tell him about it later. Um, my friend, uh, my, my aside from a worldwide craziness about the Beatles themselves, it was a Broadway show. Um, my friend Kevin McShane from the Lieber Krebs office, the producer of the show, said to me, "How do you know you're not like uh, Paul McCartney?" Paul McCartney's illegitimate brother or something. How do you know his father never had an affair like 15 years down the line? I'm going like, it's a great story, Kevin, but I think you can keep it to yourself. <laughs> I mean, 
there isn't any proof it's, that it's not. No, true. I mean, I and I wasn't adopted child, so he might have had a <laughs> a fling here in you the know. United States. Who knows? I don't know. <laughs> keep keep the air of mystery. Yes, I can't you. confirm or deny anything. Next question. Yes. <laughs> so I'm going to take things right back to the start because as much as I want to talk about Beatlemania, I want to talk about okay. You. When did you first discover the Beatles? I discovered the Beatles um, in... Let me let me yeah. guess. Is it the Ed Sullivan show? I think I discovered them before, but the first time I saw them was the Ed Sullivan show. <laughs> I mean, I was aware of them from newspaper and fan magazine stuff here in the States and things, the earlier stuff. Um, I had the VJ singles. My, I had an aunt that lived in Brighton Beach, uh, in which is a community, a Russian community primarily uh, in Brooklyn, New York. We lived on Long Island. Uh, Brooklyn is actually on Long Island, but you never thought of it that way. She would come and visit, and she would bring me, as a young child, I didn't even realize where the hell Brooklyn was. Um, I just knew I lived on Long Island. Where the hell is Brooklyn? So she would bring me records. I was thinking about this in the car. She would bring me 45s of the day. She brought me a Fabian 45 out of a song called Hound Dog. Uh, She brought me uh, which were the four tops 45s and she started to bring me Beetle 45s and the VJs showed up actually on that same yeah. on that same kind of line I want to ask you what kind of music are you listening to these days that was meant to be the first now, the funny thing is right I... now I don't listen to a lot of music these days we've been re- relocating for a while my wife and I we finally relocated up here and she'll put stuff on Pandora so we're listening to a lot of stuff that's mm-hmm. been out there before so I hear a lot of Foo Fighters, I hear a lot of uh, um, my friend John Resnick. What the hell is that band? Um, Goo Goo Dolls. We hear whatever comes through the playlist. Uh, Billy Idol, um, a lot. She loves Midnight Oil, so Midnight Oil is playing all the time. Uh, the, the reason why I don't listen to a lot of radio now. Thanks a lot, Mitch. Now I'm going to have that stuck yeah, in my head. My, my, uh, my truck, our truck that we own, hasn't had a radio working in it for like five or six years. So, and of course the time to listen to music for me was always in the car, long drives, short drives, whatever it was. Um, I hate listening to music on my phone because it's just that one tiny stupid speaker. Uh, The funny thing is I did, uh, you know, my musical career, if you have any notes on this, I ended up working with Kiss in the eighties and writing with them, still talk to Gene occasionally. Uh, My friend, Phil Susan, um, who was actually with Ozzy and Jakey Lee was in the band. He wrote, a shot in the dark. And uh, and that is actually a guilty pleasure of mine and my wife. Sometimes I'll put it on in the morning on my on YouTube on my laptop with the speakers <laughs> just blasting around the house. Uh, so and she's not a metal person at all. She's my wife is younger than me and she's into punk, which is even stranger. But she likes all kinds of music. So when I was when we had radio and stuff was working and things like that, she would always turn me on to music. So I'd listen to whatever she listened to. So right now it's just playlists. That's what I'm like. I actually did have something written about that uh, kiss yeah, connection because right. you've done uh, a fair bit of work with, you know, especially Gene, yeah. and well, that whole kind of circle. Yeah. I'm I'm kind of including Wendy o. Williams yeah. in that. Circle. It started it started with him that uh, way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But you and uh, Joe Pecorino did uh, background vocals on the. Uh, how how do how should we describe it? Uh, Gene's uh, mixed Gene Simmons solo album. Yeah, his his first solo album, the one where they all did four solo albums when they were in Kiss. Yeah. Uh, we happened to be 
in California doing Beatlemania at the Schubert Theater. Actually, it moved from the Schubert to the Pantages Theater. And we were about to move in June to June of 78 to uh, the theater in uh, Chicago, Illinois. Um, Blackstone Theater in Chicago, Illinois. And Joey and I had packed up, he packed up his house that he's renting in Santa Monica. We packed up, I packed up my apartment in, in Hollywood and um, we were just waiting to go. And I get a call from the Kiss's publicity office, the press office, uh, through the Lieber Krebs office that Gene was trying to find me and Joe to sing on his solo album. Now on that solo album, he had everybody from Phoebe Snow to Rick Nielsen to share to all kinds of players on that album. Oh, to, um, uh, what's his name? Wasn't he dating Joe, Joe Perry? At the time he was dating Cher, yeah. Um, yeah. And so, but he had all these people on We were in California and he was recording at Cherokee Recorders on Fairfax Avenue. And um, so they got a hold of me and said, Gene wants you to be on this record. So Joey and I both were asked. I called him and we went down to Cherokee and uh, with my wife, who was actually a photographer back then, Still start for taking photos, documenting it. So we went to, of course, you couldn't take photos, but there are some on my mm -hmm. on my page with me and Joe. Uh, Gene's Gene is up uh, against the wall with his back to us, with his Doctor Strange fingers up on the wall, mm -hmm. and um, and we're there. We sang backgrounds with Eric Troyer on that on the four different tracks, three different tracks. Um, Eric, of course, was his friend Rory Dodd was part of a duo called. The Blendos, and they sang on almost every Billy Joel stuff, Meatloaf, you name it. Rory is actually on all kinds of Meatloaf albums forever. They were oh, Rory wow. was my neighbor on my blocks so when I did my demos in the '80s. He and Eric sang with me on my my demo. It was the best vocal blending I ever had. I don't think I sang as well since then, but we sang on Gene's album. We just happened to be in the right place at the right time. As Gene puts it, he wanted John and Paul. They were busy, so I got the next best thing which is an awfully nice thing mm -hmm. to say. Well, you are the next best thing. <laughs> I'll take that as a compliment. I'm not just yeah. saying that. Yeah. I'm not just saying that because I'm talking to you Well, right thank now. you. Thank you very much. And the real Paul McCartney did not return my phone calls. Well, he should. You're a nice young man and interviewer. And what's wrong with doing another interview, Paul? How many have you done? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd ask him the same four questions everyone always asks him. <laughs> It's just a walk in the park. Yeah. It's not like he hasn't answered them before. No. He can make up new answers you like know. Ringo did about Paul's death. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I cut you off. That's okay. Anyways, VJ singles your aunt would bring Yeah. You. And then, of course, the other ones as, they, as I knew who they were. But yeah, my first introduction to them was officially, I would say, other than the singles, was the show. Uh, the Ed Sullivan show. And all I can tell you is the, the impact it had was my hair was probably like this or shorter back then in the 60s. It had no beetle haircut. Of course, dark. Mm -hmm. The face was still the face. Uh, just a young kid's face. Um, but I'll never forget when I came out of my house the next day, all the little girls in the neighborhood just going, oh, you look just like Paul McCartney. And as I say, and my wife hates this, my my final and current wife hates this phrase, but my saying was, uh, after they said that, I immediately went out and started buying black turtleneck shirts because to <laughs> capitalize on the Meet the Beatles Smart cover. Smart man. Yeah. So, <laughs> I didn't have any girlfriends, but I had the look. That was funny. Yeah. 
entrepreneurial from a young yes, age. Yes, yes. I, I can I can milk this a little bit. Where are those turtleneck shirts? Yeah. So you you're a Beatle fan in the U.S. right from the beginning. Yeah, I was a. What was? Yeah. Uh, I, I like asking people, how did you react as the music started evolving? I, uh, I thought the evolution was great. I mean, we, the kids in the neighborhood and I, you know, when, when you're, when we're, we're um, I was 12 or 12 years old when they appeared. Um, and then uh, as we would play, you know, you, you mime to records in, your, in the basements of the houses you lived mm -hmm. in and stuff in my uh, down. And I always, I didn't play any instruments at that point in time. And I was actually born left-handed. So it's interesting. I didn't play. I Longer story, but I, I played lefty and righty in the first performances of the show in Boston. Um, they got me left-handed Hopkins. <laughs> well, I have notes written on that. Yeah, so, <laughs> I, so I, I used to strum my tennis racket lefty. I got off my bicycle on the wrong side. I had to reach over and put the kickstand down. I batted left-handed. <laughs> I could play golf in both directions. The the people, the, the teachers though would take the pencils out of your hand, your left hand, and put it in your right hand because they couldn't fathom teaching you. Actually, if you think about it, it's a perfect way to teach. It's a mirror image. You just tell them to put the, <laughs> the pen in a different place. Um, but I learned to, to be writing, and so there were no left-handed instruments either. There, there were actually, unbeknownst to me, in grade school, sixth grade or so, I started to play the French horn. Actually, I played the mellophone. The mellophone is a trumpet fingering instrument that's played in the right-handed direction, like a trumpet. Mm -hmm. Whereas the French horn, which I started playing in the seventh grade, which is a different school system, is a different fingering system completely, and you play it left-handed. Um, so I did both those things, both those instruments. I'll never forget, years later, John Entwistle and I had conversations about that, because he played all those horn parts on the oh. Who records. And I told him, I said, I knew you played the French horn. He said, so did I. So we used to sing the French horn parts sitting around a piano late night in a house in Beverly Hills sometimes. It was pretty funny. Yeah. Mitch, what is it with you and getting songs stuck in my head inadvertently? Uh, <laughs> I've been listening to the album, The Who Sell Out. Oh, what a great, amazing album. Uh, nonstop well, that goes, for like the past. In a way, that goes to what you said. What was I listening to? I mean, The Who was after the Beatles, of course. But The Who, that mm -hmm. Who Sell Out record, you know, Monday, Saturday, I mean, all that stuff that's Day. on there. I mean, you know, you, know, you should have used Odorono. I mean, those songs are all amazing songs. What's for Tito? Exactly. What's for Tito? You know, and I used to do a Bored is the Spider on the, on the, on the, on the first two records, which is great. I mean... Oh, I, I love you know, those first few The first two albums so are unbelievable. Fun. Unbelievable. Uh, like you know, well, the first one was my generation, but the next one after one, People Rushes Away or Real <laughs> or um, Armenia City in the what Sky. What was it called in the U.S.? Uh, Happy, Happy Jack, Jack. I think it's yeah. called. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but those are my favorite records. Now I, I'm gonna have. I listen to those records more than I listen to the Beatles albums. I mean, I was into that. I was into Cream. I was into uh, oh. Free. Um, then the, after that, Bad Company. So my my musical up taste, even though I loved the Beatles, my musical upbringing was really heavier stuff. I did not listen to Kiss. I mean, it was, I, but I did listen to Zeppelin like you cannot believe, um, and I reacted to it because a lot of it. I reacted. I never, as much as I was a singer in my band, I didn't react so much to the lyrics with them. For me, it was the music because I would say to people, "Show me the lyric sheet to Prokofiev. Show, show me the lyric sheet to Stravinsky." So when you get to the past the lyrics and Zeppelin's doing his, his sound stuff, 
<laughs> that's what moved me. All it was was about the music. In the 80s, I could jam to anything with anyone. But don't, even though I'm the singer, I said, what do you want to sing? I said, I don't know any lyrics. Don't ask me. I could play every cheap, cheap trick song under the sun, but don't ask me to sing any of them, which I could, but I'd have to learn them. So, it's, you know, so, so yeah. Oh, now I've, I've the Heinz Baked Beans <coughs> song from the Who sellout stuck in my head. Yeah. And, um, you mentioned Zeppelin. I just want to ask to see how how much we have in common. Yep. What is your favorite Zeppelin? I think album? it might still be the first one, uh, just because of the really? introduction. I mean, I do like uh, Zeppelin Four um, or Zoso, <laughs> whatever you want to call it. Um, yeah. There's a lot of them. I mean, I actually loved Into the Outdoor for its sloppiness and for the fact that John Paul Jones pulled the reins because Jimmy was having a little too much fun with his drugs in those days. Um, yeah. But they, and I got to talk to Paige about that later on um, because we were sitting at a club in Manhattan once and he, we're sitting at the table. Together. He'd seen me pretty much be the guy in the club that everybody came to talk to. And it wasn't my club. I mean, it was just like, and his friend came over, his handler came over and said to me, Jimmy thinks that you're a uh, very interesting sort of guy. Can we sit at, can, he'd like you to sit at his table. And that's how we first, we met. And I'm sitting there going. And he said no. Oh yeah, of course, of course I right? said no. But we sat there and we yeah. got to know each other on a, on a lot of occasions, talked over the years and we come to town. Um, we, um, I sat there saying to him, I have one question to ask you because I had just seen the Atlantic 25th anniversary show at the Guard where all of the mag, mag, famous Atlantic acts played their, uh, their, mm -hmm. uh, homage to, uh, to Ahmet Erdogan and it was a 25th anniversary show mm -hmm. and everybody it was an amazing show um, the Zeppelin had reformed with John Paul Jones no not John Paul Jones Jason Bonham on drums Robert and Jimmy and a, another mm -hmm. bass player whose name I can't remember but I actually remember talking to John Kalagna saying he was very good I was sitting there watching it and Jimmy would play these solos the two part solos and go in the middle of the solo like in uh uh, Missy Mount, I think it's Missy Mount. Would be the melody line, or you'd slide two fingers up with your fingers. He played just a, just a harmony line. Like, where the hell is the? Where? What are you thinking? Why would you play the normal stuff? And I had the conversation with him for the table. I said, I saw the show, and you did. He says, personally, he says, I don't know what's going to come out. He says, I just play and whatever it takes me, that's the part I play. I said, it kind of reminds me of the Beatles records when on the early albums, they're jumping all over those harmonies. It's not just Paul singing this oh, part. Yeah. It's uh, please, please me is uh, please, please me. Well, yeah, like I'll please. I mean, they're jumping all up and down in these parts. It wasn't until years later, they, you take the high part, I'll take the low part. Um, and that's before when you got there, if I fell and stuff, they, they had, it was uniform. So I remember talking to George mm -hmm. Martin about that, and Jimmy said, "Yeah, I, said, I just don't know which part I'm going to play." I said, you "Who haven't you talked to?" Uh, I don't. I that's hard to answer. I mean, if I said to him, I, I told him, I said, "Why couldn't you have just gone there and slid your two fingers up and played both parts at the same time?" He says, "It's it's funny." He says, "You know that about the Beatle Army?" I said, "Yeah." So we had some interesting conversations about about that stuff, so which is fun. Yeah. What what were your memories of? listening to Sgt. Pepper for the first time. That was... Because it sounded like you were pretty in tune with what yeah, was going on. I was... You know, I grew, like, with 66, there was a yeah, lot I, of... Yeah, it's it, funny. I, I listened to... I mean, I listened to all those records at home when I, when I got them. My aunt, my, <laughs> my mother's... My grandmother used to bring me sometimes the albums. My dad would buy me, bring me the albums or I'd go to the store and buy them. I remember when Sgt. Pepper came out, it was such a big deal. That was actually the first record where people waited outside... 
like department stores. I was going to a department store near my house, not even a record store. And I was in the parking lot with like about 50 other kids and their mothers sitting around in their cars waiting to buy Sgt. Pepper. It was the first stereo album I owned of theirs. Everything was in mono. It wasn't until I'm doing Beatlemania and I'm listening to I'm Looking Through You that I ever knew there was a false start. I'm going, I remember I'm 20 some odd years old going, what the fuck was that? My roommate's laughing. He goes, you didn't know that was there? I said, no, because all I had was the mono album. But yeah. Pepper as a stereo record that's when they panned things amazingly, even though it was just, you know, done on a yeah. three track and then added stuff there, or a four track and added stuff and split it. How they split it is amazing. I talked to Jeff Emmerich about mm -hmm. that years later. Um, so again, yeah. with these names, again, it's, I've had a long life and got to actually ask questions about to the people who did that stuff way back when. Um, so why did you mix it like well, this? So, I mean, so Ben, I listened to that album those, with the headphones. Those early stereo yeah. Beatles records were. I, I mean, uh, I have enormous respect for George Martin, Jeff Emmerich, yes. Norman Smith, all those yeah. people. Those albums sound horrible. I, I cannot listen to, like, the early stereo Please Please Me or right. with the Beatles with headphones or else I will get, like, a migraine. When you're used to listening to it the way it is now, it's, but it's very funny. There's a lot of people in the Sgt. First when Sgt. Pepper was re just released recently and redone by Giles and... Um, mm -hmm. Those mixes and have stuff you talked like that. To him about I haven't it? talked. I haven't met Giles. I knew George. I met George, uh -huh. but I haven't talked Giles. Um, I didn't. Um, and a lot Ladies of people. Ladies and gentlemen, I have stumped yeah, Mitch yeah, or, or found somebody I haven't met. But my my, I listened. I have to, to be honest with you. I haven't even listened to to those mixes yet. I haven't even listened to those records. My friends, they're fantastic. All, that's what I hear. They're fantastic. But when you talk to Jeff about it, he was pissed because that was the made, way they made the record. They made the record to sound the way they made it. And for him, the other versions is like, why would you do this? Because that's not the Beatle, that's not a Beatle record. That's a Beatle remix album. I get it. And with technology, you can do that. I remember being in New York at Media Sound on 57th Street in college. And my friend Alan, the same guy who built those phone boxes, was the setup guy mm -hmm. there. And we would come in at midnight when everybody went home. And my band, we record from midnight to like 8 a.m. and get the hell out of the studio. But when I'd come and visit him, he would be take me down to the vault. I made a two-track copy of All Things Must Pass, the master recording, all the time saying, please what? don't rip this. Please don't rip the tape. Please don't rip it. I made a copy. There was a gentleman called Loudon Rainwright, um, singer-songwriter, and his album was down the thing. And Alan said, here, mix it the way you want it. And I threw it up on the machine, and I turned the dials, and I made, I, I made his recording sound like, uh, you know, uh, Lady Madonna, like, but like the telephone voice and so i totally remixed this yeah. entire album uh to make the sound so sound is an important thing i think obviously with the technology the way it is now if you can expand that record and what kyle's did i've i've heard my purest musical friends say it is absolutely amazing and you should listen to it mm -hmm. and i probably should um because i and i will i mean you know but the thing is in my opinion it it doesn't really I think the sound's really important, yeah. but it it the music still should be central, yeah. and you should li be able to listen to it however you want to right. listen to right. it. Exactly. Like, I mean, I have such delicate, prissy little ears. Yeah, you can hear everything. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, th this will totally alienate any purist listeners. Yeah. If I'm listening to something and I don't like the mix, yep. like the stereo mix, if I find it obnoxious. Yep. I will, if I'm listening on my computer, I will go in 
and make it so my computer is playing mono audio in that's, my headphones. That's great, though, because it's the same, same with me. Is I mean, I find, I mean, we grew up in the 70s when we were growing up with all these mixes where they pan stuff, you know, like Zeppelin, left and right. Yeah. You know, it's going through your head. I mean, those were amazing <laughs> mixes, and whoever thought of that was unreal. The Beatles didn't have that yeah. technology at the time, so you couldn't do it, but some of it was. You know, number nine, so things would go. They could only pan certain items. So the thing is, if a mix is on the same way, if, if I can't sound, if I can't handle the oral tone of something, I'll skip the song. Seriously, mm -hmm. I'll just skip the damn song. Sometimes it has to do with the way people listen to stuff in their cars, the way people back in the day of Walkman, what's that you say? Um, your musician friends tend to lose the high end in their ears, especially guitarists, yeah. especially the ones, and it's sometimes drummers because of the sibilance and the cymbals, but if you're standing in front of it, you can get that stuff. And that's why sometimes it is. Luckily, I've, I've taken notes from those who came before yeah. me whenever I'm drumming. Yeah. I, I go over the top with the ear right. protection. So you do it. You have to. Um, you know, yeah. back in those days, nobody knew don't let your kid listen to a, to earphones or even the in-ears are the worst uh, for more than 30 minutes at a time because uh, it's going to be permanent damage. And I remember my friends handing me their, their stuff to say, listen to this. And it would be all because their high end is totally gone. They have to put all the pebble up. And the volume would be up. And I go, hold on a second. I put it down to like five. You go, you can hear that? I said, yes, I can. I can still, <laughs> still hear that. And I still have my frequencies still now. It's pretty funny. Yeah. Uh, so I want to ask you, what is your favorite Beatles song? Somebody asked me that you can, you, recently. You can... Switch, you can switch to a top five I, if it's if it's a difficult decision. I did an interview with a friend of mine, Steve Longo, drummer friend of mine, the other day. We were catching up after years and years. He's got a thing. He interviews people from the past, you know, they're famous <laughs> or not. He happens to be, so am I. So, but he asked me my favorite song and said, and, and I, even since then, I haven't thought about it. I mean, I do like Yesterday, but it was one of the songs I hope I don't sing anymore, but it's not really true. <laughs> um Got to Get to My Life is one of my favorite songs, probably because it harkens back to my Motown days, and it's so much fun to play and sing. Um, mm -hmm. But I love, I mean, if I, I'd have to, I'd have to take, start looking at, I like For No One. I like, uh, and then the, and I love um, Georgia's songs on, um, well, Within You, Without You, something you mentioned on one of the other broadcasts, Ken mentioned. Oh. But I love, uh, um, what the hell's those? The two, Suyomo. You know, it's it's all too much. Oh, um, it's all too believe much. We'll talk about a headphone and mix. Only a northern song. Yeah, talk about a talk about a head headphone song and the oh, fade out and the God. fade back in. That that's like maybe the White Album and maybe is my favorite record because of all that stuff that's supposedly throw away. But how could you have released it without putting all that stuff on there? This is what they were doing. I'm glad you brought up it's all too much because yeah. that's that may be my favorite Beatles song right now. Hold on, my, my phone is dying. I'm coming back. We are experiencing technical difficulties. Please stand by. Welcome back, my friends, to the show that never ends. <laughs> See, welcome, or you haven't stopped listening because it's the same episode. Mitch and I got right. cut off for a second and I had to subject you to my uh, cat-skinning or the sound of my awful voice trying to do Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Yeah, it was in tune, at least. 
Don't worry no, about it. No, it wasn't. It was you fine. don't have to humor yes, me. Was. Welcome back, my friend. It was fine. It was great. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyways, where was I? It's all too much. It's it's the it's all, closest yes, exactly. the Beatles got to that perfect LSD freakout style. Yeah, which to me, since I didn't do that stuff, it just was phenomenal to me. And I guess that's where that those things came from, whether it's number nine and stuff like that. For a kid that wasn't doing any of that stuff, it just was so orally so amazing. I'm, I'm in um, that same boat. I have not done yeah. LSD as yeah. of right now. Like, yeah, I, and I still haven't done it. Yeah. So you're, you're right there. Well, there's, there's, uh, probably there's scared, time it scares for the hell out of me. Well, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm on a concoction of uh, doctor recommended pills that I've heard do not mix well with psychedelics. Psychedelics, yeah. yes, yeah. Well, then you, if if the concoctions a doctor has for you now level you out and make you fine. Yeah. And you go off them sometime. You have all the time in the world yeah. inside if you want to do that. <laughs> uh, I'm such, um, pardon my French, a little bitch. Because I had a friend offer me <laughs> magic mushrooms once. Ooh, like ooh, they yeah. had in hand. And I said, no, I can't. I can't, you know. Yeah, I'm, I, on, I'm on too I, many I, antipsychotics. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. That's, that's another show in itself. Yeah. That's right. Welcome back to Pill Talk with Ethan Alexanian. <laughs> that that may may be the one thing I have more expertise on than the Beatles. It could, could I don't know. I mean, I, it sounds like, well, person, whatever they're using or whatever they have you taking right now seems to have, have have you operating fine. So the thing is, if you if it was focusing issues, if it was other issues, anxiety issues, whatever it is, yeah. the blend is working just fine. So, it's, <laughs> so and hopefully it will stay that way. How old are you, Ethan? I didn't I'm, ask. I'm 17. That's great. That's you great. know, I, I can say this. with 100% certainty, I've never received that compliment from a guest before. And you know what? Really? <laughs> I like it. You know what? Young youth should be, I mean, you know, it's that old adage, the youth is wasted on the youth. Um, yeah. um, and because a lot of the youth doesn't do this, I mean, explore the world, explain this. You have this ultimate playground now. You can search out anything you want. Mm -hmm. And part of the problem is to get off the computer. Yeah. Because it's you can just stay there forever. Well, and see, part of here's me the is, thing is I found the solution yeah. to that uh, yep. problem. Uh, I just don't. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. You know, I live. I on mean, the as internet. when even well, I, I can't do it for a number of reasons. I just don't because. I mean, I'll end up watching movies all day if I can. I'll never, I'll never forget moving out to be with my wife. She was my girlfriend at the time. I left New York in 2003. Mm -hmm. I, you go on planes and you try to do the entertainment stuff from years ago, and it's just like maybe one, ter two bad movies. Yeah. That's it. The in-flight audio, which sometimes was phenomenal, and most of the time not. Yeah. Interview with some of the some high mucky muck psychologist or something on another channel, and that's it. And just on all the other ones, I remember. I'm a I'm a television and visual sort of guy. Yeah. Um, it doesn't transfer over to YouTube and that stuff. Searching things out, unless I'm looking for for information on stuff, and I'll, and I'll go do that. But the thing is, I can watch television. Actually, I said that that's another thing with Emmerich. I said, what do you listen to these days with music when you leave the studio? This was three years ago. She says, I don't listen to music anymore. I've listened to music my entire life. I don't. When I leave the studio, I go home and watch television. I said, let me shake your hand. Um, because, But again, I'm not 
working at music all day long or doing productions and stuff like that. But the thing is, for him, relaxation was television. Yeah. His music was something else. It was relaxing, but after a long day of music, I am not going home and listening to music. So, and then I asked him another question. So how do you keep up with all technology? He says, he says to me, my job is to produce and hear things and mix things and get it from my head to your head. Mm -hmm. So as far as the gear goes, I have all these guys with laptops for that. Because I basically, that, and that's the whole thing. You, When you were a producer, as you got into more and more into producing, your engineer, Alan Parsons, those guys, those were, and, and, and Jeff, yeah. that was the guy that got the sounds. You mm -hmm. said, I needed to sound like this. And while you were doing something else, still doing with the band, all of a sudden it shows up on tape because that guy knew how to do the sounds, yeah. the technical end of thing. So Jeff says, now that I'm, I've been producing, I don't learn. You think I can keep up with this gear? You're out of your mind. I said, I, that's, why, that's why I don't record. I miss the laptop of GarageBand, and it's so I don't do recordings on that way. I Find me an old Porter studio. I can lay down tracks. Or find me a friend who will record me overdubbing, and that's fine. But I also don't do much music now because I have a, a cutoff valve in my head that if I can't do anything with it, I'm not going to record. Yeah. I'm not going to do it. So I, it's kind of a safety. So. Although I feel like I'm almost the reverse. Like I, I do a lot of music production stuff, but a lot yeah. of that older gear kind of scares the shit out of me. You it, know, you put it, me in front of a four track machine and I'll just yeah. stare at it until someone moves yep. it away from me. I, it is. It's true. Because how do you, how does this work? What does this do? I mean, when you went into the studio in the old days and you had the compressors and stuff, and they had these things called Pultex and they were gigantic rack gear that was everything went through like if you an example of if you listen to fm radio or am radio mm -hmm. and the guy goes silent and you hear because <sighs> it's sucking in all the sound and compressing it mm -hmm. and when there's nobody speaking it sucks in the silence and that's the <sighs> so you're hearing silence at a huge volume because the machine trying to find it and i'll never forget when with gene simmons we're in the studio with doro pesh in the 90s in la and he couldn't get the sound he wanted on a recording for a bass track. I said, see those units in the corner? Those are the Pultex, the compressors. Run the signal through there. And he did, and the engineer did it. He says, wow, that sounds perfect. How did you learn that? I said, from the KISS recording sessions from three years ago, you jerk. Because he forgot. You forget. Yes, I'm actually on an interview in Canada. This is my neighbor, Tom Bernard. Talking about tech head, I'm talking to my friend Ethan in Waterloo, Canada. What was your question? Hang on one second, folks. Um, this is live. The electricity in the back, Kevin was saying, is yeah. sort of your, well, they, their brilliance, didn't realize that when they disconnected the 220, it also It all happened here, end. folks. Okay. So I'm going to, I can handle it. Okay. Yeah, no, it was funny because I just realized the light was not working outside. The light's not working outside. And the, the whole wall's dead. Not charging. Yeah. Yep. Everything, something's happening. Yeah. Now. All right. But I will get it happen so that it's normal. Okay. Until they figure it out. Okay. All right. There you go. Technical update from my neighbor Tom Bernard. See, we, uh, you know we what? A, now we have what? an explanation, possibly, for what yes. happened. It could be. Yeah. Uh, we have a. They're putting a pool in. Oh. Outside, and we had. They were, it was running from two twenty to one ten, to both sides, both garages in the back. It's like a two-family sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and when they disconnected the 220, they disconnected the 110, 
And I noticed that when I go out there and there's a light at nighttime and I'm walking my dog, it was never going on. And then I went into the garage and there's no power. So he just discovered it also. When they, when they disconnected it, nobody hooked it back up. So See, it couldn't have something to do with this. This know? is turning out to be one of the most exhilarating interviews I've ever done. Because there's it's real life consequences. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> life, folks. He throws curveballs all the time. That's right. I was going to, I was asking you before, you know, the last five minutes happened. Right. Um, what your favorite Beatles song is. I'm going to ask, what is your least favorite Beatles song? Okay, this is going to it. So again, I think I think I can settle on Not to Get You just for the heck of it. Um, but I know it's not that. Like, it could be, actually be all too much. Which is, which is, no, we, I mean we, least favorite. Least favorite. No, no that was it, ending that conversation. Yeah. Least favorite. That my wife was here on that last interview, and I said, oh, I don't know. I mean, if I never sang yesterday again, I'd be happy, because it's not my favorite song. And it's, saying it, forget it. She chimed in and said, if I never hear you do Hey Jude again, I said, oh, all right, I could say that. It's not because I don't like the song. Because of personal, mm-hmm. I have sung it way too many times. And way too many, you know, sing it with me here, sing it with me there, you know, stopping. Yeah. It's very funny. When Giles did the mix for for a, a love show mm-hmm. and you have na 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 hey Jude then you get just a boom 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 boom, boom the bass line mm-hmm. and it's just drums and bass and it's something like that and I, I started laughing because when we used to do the breakdowns in Canada especially mm-hmm. um, we would lead, lead the audience in the na na na's and then the guys the guy would stop singing and I'd just be playing the bass line Mm-hmm. Or he just, my, I, I get up in the piano and go, okay, left side of the audience, you know, na na na, hey, and the bass player, my the John guy would be playing bass, would start doing boom, 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 boom. So it was like I'm laughing, going, I've done this already, you know. So, but it's but it's severe, but it's fun. Yeah, and you and yeah, all over again. So you <laughs> listen to, but the thing is, hey, Jude for me might be the song that has turned into my least favorite one because of just so much repetition. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to do these, I'm sure you're aware of them, the Fest for Beatle fans, which used to be called yeah. the Beatle Fest. Mm-hmm. And at the end well, of every... Um, this show's night, a good friend of all the Beatle Fest people. Yeah. I had Mark on. Uh, yes, yeah. But I would, it would get, it turned into a, into a train wreck at the end where everybody's on stage singing and everyone's do this and do that. And I would just, luckily I wasn't playing piano at that, at that point because I'd be playing the other stuff. Then we'd go into it and Jude and Drew would play it, and I'd play bass, and I'd let everybody come up to the mic and just sing, <laughs> just sing, and I'd back off into nowhere. If I, if I could, I would hand the. I think I actually <laughs> handed the bass to a couple of different people once and just left the stage and watched from the front of the house. This is this is the way I want to hear this song from out here. No, but it was it was great. It was a lot of fun. Mitch oh, Weiss, you know my diabolical genius. <laughs> yeah, how to leave the stage while everybody's doing the song. Um, the other thing is, just for an interesting point, Chris Camerlari, the drummer, and I, he would always laugh because when we would do the movie, what you need is on your shoulder, na, 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 na. Um, but it would be, um, it would always be at the part where the, the laughter, so whatever, so, and I would go like, I would always sing the Robert Plant line, does anybody remember laughter from the live, <laughs> from the live Zeppelin album where you did, you did uh, Stairway to Heaven? Echo with laughter. And he goes, does anybody remember laughter? And it actually worked perfectly in Hey Jude. And Chris would just stop playing because he'd be laughing so hard. <laughs> that, that became the only reason for me to do the song, to get to that one line and see if anybody else knew what it meant. 
after years of doing it, I think people just thought it was my ad lib and had no idea. Beetle people just thought it was my ad lib and had nothing to do with that. So, so you so heard it here Zeppelin. first. You heard it yes, here first. Yeah. <laughs> now, what is your favorite Beatles album? I'm, I'm getting all my uh, usual questions out of the way before I go to uh, the Beatle main. And I, it's, what's funny is I haven't been asked these questions in probably 35 years. So, um, my I love Revolver. That's the correct answer. Revolver. That's the correct answer. Yeah. yeah. That's the one that broke it all open for me. I mean, that they were pretty much pre-Sgt. Pepper on Revolver. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Doing, um, uh, what's this? I love those songs. I that's what obviously got there to come from that from that mm -hmm. album. But in the U.S., I mean, um, all that sort of stuff. I mean, I love the fact that Taxman George isn't playing on it. That's even more insane. Um, he's not. George is not playing on Taxman. Really? That's Paul McCartney, Paul McCartney playing the guitars and the guitar solo. I knew he played, Maybe he played, played the guitars, but... He, may, you know, he didn't play the lead. That was McCartney. He may have played some. McCartney plays the bass. Um, George said in an interview in the Cream magazine way back in the 70s sometimes. I don't think I'm even playing on that song. So it's pretty insane. Well, I guess um, that's payback for Paul not playing on uh, She Said, She Said. Yeah, which is an amazing song. Of course, she said, yeah. "She said it's unbelievable." It, it's one of uh, the top three and, tracks um, from the album. That and uh, it is not dying. Tomorrow, Relax and float. Uh, tomorrow, tomorrow never, never knows. knows. We used to do that across Canada all the time, also because what? we figured out a way to do it. Yeah, we used to play it all the time live, um, and I just be just one one hand the notes on the on the bass and sing. Uh, yeah, and then and, and Leslie would hit the. Back in the days of the DX7, which didn't, yeah. didn't even mix down, just play it and have his guitar hanging from it, or the other guy, or Mark Picaccio. This is when we were touring across Canada A DX7? in the nineties, like the Yamaha DX7. synthesizer. That, that half keyboard. That was what we used to rent from the backline companies. So you play, hey Jude, and you have to just play the one finger on the bass note. You couldn't go, you couldn't go back and forth. It was just, hey Jude, dun dun. Because there was no, there was no bottom end of the keyboard, and then you couldn't really split it and have it go to the next frame. So then you're playing the, you're playing the keyboards like your hands out like five feet to the right, and you're trying to sing. It's impossible. Just so you can do, rock your hand. No, those were those were different days back then. Yeah, them was great. the days. Yes, those were the days, and I'm glad they're not there anymore. Those were <laughs> for, the days, my friend. I wish they. Speaking of Beatles, yes. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. What is your least favorite Beatles album? Wow. Um, it's probably a best of greatest hits, something or other okay. record like that. I, when we when we were doing the show in the 70s, we first started putting out um, the it's the second album cover, but it's but it can't, but it was but it wasn't the second album. It was like a greatest hits, first greatest hits record. It's a picture of them from from the second Beatle record, uh, Beatles second album, and they're all holding their gear up. And oh, rock and roll music. Hands. Yeah, rock, rock and roll music. That well, I've actually seen a picture out. circulating online when, oh, again, yeah. breaking the fourth wall. I, I do a lot of graphics yeah. for this show, and I was trying to do yes, one up for you. And yeah. I, I came across you guys in an early publicity photo recreating that yeah. exact pose it's very funny because we we did it years later a better version of it but the very first one we did against a background that's just a, a roll a roll, roll drop is was at sir studios in new york even when we recreated the one with the 
with them in the chairs and I'm yeah. having cigarettes, whatever it is, stuff like that. Same photo sessions. Um, so I, I totally forgot at that point in time we were doing the second album cover because there's late, later on there's one that's there and somebody pointed out to me on Facebook around he actually used the second album. It's at the isn't it funny? You guys have just, I, and I said, I didn't even realize we were doing that. I was probably just too interested in what we were doing at the time. We're taking promo pictures. Yeah. I don't remember even posing for it. So if you use it, the graphic, yeah. that's a great idea. Well, I, I ended up so, doing something completely different. Is good. I, I, okay. I, I took, I think, I, yeah, took, I took the uh, original playbill for uh, Beatlemania oh. and I, cool. you know, changed everything. So instead of Beatlemania, it says fans on the run. I changed all of That's the great. text. I'll send it to you. It's it's kind of cool. I can't wait to see it. Can't wait to see it online when when it shows up, which will yeah. be great. Am I um my I just, the album I I didn't like a lot of those greatest hits well, records. That it did kind of coincide with that whole era with Beatlemania. There was you know rock yeah. and roll music, love songs, right, real right, music, exactly. all those yep. kind of. Cheaper. You had the blue, the blue record yeah. and the well, those red are, record. Those which are the only great. two good ones. The red and the blue. Yeah, and it's fantastic just for the fact that somebody was smart enough to have them. They recreated that same pose yeah. years later, and it just it's, you couldn't. It's a good thing the band did it because you couldn't get them to do it again later on because they just weren't talking to each other. Yeah. So it's good that they had a sense of humor. Let's go back to EMI and take lean over the railing. So. <laughs> Those records were good. The sounds were good. I stopped buying it when they had different mixes in this version and that version or whatever it was. Do I have an album I don't like? I'd have to see them in front of me to, it was my least favorite because I think I listened to them all pretty uniformly all the time. Mm -hmm. um, the White Album may have been burdensome because you couldn't, there was just too much to listen to. Yeah. Let It Be is actually, I'm sorry, but Let It Be is not necessarily a great record. Um, you, thank you, thank you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, now it's, that I'm saying it out loud, that is not the, my favorite Beatles record. It's, when, it's the one they put together. If you yeah. listen to it in the context of what it really is, yeah. it's just a soundtrack yeah. album to the film. Yeah, it if, is. If you listen yep. to it that way, it, it's a good yeah. soundtrack. It's not a Let good Beatles record. Did they ever remix that one yet? They they are in the process. It, it got delayed. Because that's the of, album that should be... Well, yeah, it's been because remixed of the movie and everything. once before. They, uh, yeah, they, but not the way it should yeah, have been. They despecterized the mix. Yeah, I know. They, they kind of wait. It's funny. Paul hated, Paul hated all the, the, the orchestra stuff, yet that actually worked really, really well. Uh, um, the thing I say the a lot is it about uh, the long and winding road, the song, is I, I don't yeah. like the Phil Spector production, and I like yeah, McCartney's right. production on the Let It Be Naked I do, stuff. I do, too. No, I mean, I like it but even less. Than the yeah, okay. <laughs> but the thing is, that album, I mean, dig it. That little section is a great part of the record. I mean, all the little ad libs yeah. are great. Watching them play with Preston is great. Listening to the stuff that's in there, Old Brown Shoe is actually kind of good. But the point is, and it's not even a great song. Yeah. The album, I mean, there's stuff on there that are great songs, but I think McCartney did. Maybe I'm amazed, and that sounded better than anything on that stupid record. And even that wasn't good, yeah. really, but it was just him. You know, I think Emmett Rhodes did a lot better than he did. The late but Emmett he was Rhodes. Paul McCartney. And nobody ever, yeah, and nobody listened to Emmett Rhodes because McCartney's album came out the same damn week. Um, plus, ABC Dunhill was not a great record label. No. Um, Emmett was on. But he, but that, Let It Be was never my favorite record because it just didn't sound right. It just was, it was just, just throw this against the wall and go. 
So if anybody could ever remix that and make it sound good, well, then that would be great. I think that's what Giles is actually working on as we speak. Yeah. It got it got delayed because of the be. virus, but they're doing this yeah. big let it be. Okay, there goes our, there goes our sound again. Yeah. Um, the wonderful Leslie speaker sound. It, actually, no, it, yeah. it doesn't sound like a Leslie much. speaker. Okay. What the hell am I no, doing? No, it's better now. A bunch of... Okay, there you go. So... You said uh, no one's asked you those questions in about 35 years. And now I'm going to ask you some questions yeah. that I think you probably have been asked in the last 35 years. We are experiencing technical difficulties. Please stand by. That's insane. And we're back to, so the, what the, question, we're back to yeah. the interview that yes. the universe does not want you to hear because we keep getting disconnected. Yeah. Anyways, uh... I asked you questions that you said you hadn't heard in about 35 years. I'm going to ask you some questions that you exactly. probably have heard in the last 35 years. Okay. You've probably told this yeah. story okay. a billion and a half times, but could you describe the origins of the Beatlemania show for our audience? Yes, I can. So in 1976 or so, it might have been a little earlier, about the 1976, the producers of the show, Steve Lieber and David Krebs, of the management team, Lieber Krebs, who had Aerosmith, Bootsy, Parliament, Funkadelic, Mahogany Rush, a really nice Canadian bands, and a few other acts like that. They had been um, they had been working for the William Morris office when they uh, Harrison did his big show in in Manhattan, uh, and they had this idea to maybe try to put the Beatles back together for years, but they never could. Obviously, Sid Bernstein had those full page ads. Asking them to reunite, I'll pay you $100 million, whatever it was. Never happened. Um, I actually read the story uh, not too long ago that a Beatles reunion was yeah. actually incredibly close, but it, yes, but it, was very it didn't close. happen because the opening act was going to be a guy jumping a shark or a guy wrestling a yeah, shark. Was, yeah, Lennon actually said this in an interview that just became unearthed recently. Um, he just, they went like, we can't. We can't have a shark open for us. That's not going to yeah. happen. So, so they, the, the, they had this idea for the, you know, everybody wanted the Beatles. The, the playlists and the New York radio station playlists, every year, the top selling or the top played musical artists, one through slots one through 10, were always the Beatles. So, Steve Lieber, in his infinite wisdom, decided to poll the elementary school, the high schools and junior high schools on Long Island. Ask them what their favorite Beatles songs were. And it kind of coincided with this radio station playlist across the country of favorite Beatles songs. Beatles songs. Mm -hmm. So they said, well, how can we get, if we can't get the Beatles together, what, how can we put a show together that has the Beatles music? And so their first idea was to get four guys to dress up and sound like them, be the Beatles, mm -hmm. and play the music. And the original, the original production values, they got Jules Fisher from chorus line and Chicago and visual, visual, visual guy, the um, lighting guy from Chicago, whose name escapes me now. I feel bad about that. Oh, Jules was the lighting guy. Um, but Bob Gill and Bob Rabinowitz were the, the content guys who worked on a ton of Broadway shows. Actually, Bob Rabinowitz was, or Bob, Bob Rabinowitz, no, Bob Gill was actually Charlie Watts, uh, art teacher in college in, in England. Way really? Back so, they, they had put together this amazing production crew to put, do this show about the Beatles. But there were two different video or uh, 
images, um, visual images that went with the show. But I'm jumping ahead now. The they put out an ad out in the Village Voice and in the Rolling Stone magazine. Little tiny ad in the back. Wanted singers, musicians, Beatle lookalikes for unique opportunity. Call Mrs. Price in a two one two number. <laughs> and the promo for it was a head. There was no uh, graphics back then, so somebody had taken a rapidograph and drawn over the head of Paul from from the Hard Day's Night cover. And that was the image that they used, call for unique opportunity. So my friend Andy, who worked at Sam Ash Music, which is where I ended up working years later, years and years later, um, he sent me his head up there. I had my friend Carl Greffenstead in from, from school. I went to Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. He and I were in a band together. He would travel to New York to visit me, and he dragged me to this audition. Um, at the Studio Instrument Rentals or SAR on 54th Street. Um, he called the number, spoke to someone. They got a time slot for me. I came in. We did the callbacks. I mean, we had the individual interview. I added acoustic guitar. I sang half of Yesterday, part of Get Back. The musical director at the time was Kenny Laguna, who was Joan Jett's manager and actually plays keyboards with her now on stage <laughs> and has ever since way back when. Um, not keyboards, just been with her forever. He... Asked me, can you lose any weight? And I said, sure. I wasn't particularly heavy. I'm just certainly lighter than I am now. But it was, I said, sure. And actually, I didn't answer any of the questions. Can you lose weight? And Carl went, yes. And will you learn to play lefty? And Carl went, yes. I don't think I even answered the questions at all. Um, but sure enough, I got called to the callbacks. And nobody, and there were, the callbacks were all these different era Beatles, as Joe Piccarino said. He was sitting on the couch. He saw Paul McCartney walk in the door and goes, what the hell is Paul McCartney doing here? He walked over closer and, he, and it was me. So he put his glasses on and decided to audition for Lennon instead. I guess he was there to do Paul. Um, but all the different, he said there were different era Beatles in the room. You know, George from 64, um, John from 68, I mean, what, 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 67? I mean, it was interesting. There was even a couple of black guys, a couple of Hispanic guys, but nobody knew what it was about. It was just, and they still didn't tell us after we got hired. The first four of us got hired. They still never told us. We thought it might be a commercial, might be a TV thing. Who knows what it was? Till they told us it was this Broadway show. And we actually rehearsed for nine months with the show changing visually and audio. And we learned every Beatles song imaginable, including what a pain Mary Jane had a and what a shame Mary Jane had a pain at the party. The outtake about really? pot and stuff like that. We learned everything because we had all the time well, in the world. There's this behind um, the scenes, like documentary things. You know my name. You look up the number. You know we did that. There's What's this that? behind the scenes kind of documentary about Beatlemania that I think I've watched yeah. before. That said something about re rehearsing for nine months, like eight hours yeah. a day for like five days a week. Yeah, it was. It was actually each each band had four hours. We did four hours a day. We did five days five days a week. They kept changing the song. I think the quote was me saying that back then. But, um, and we, that's actually how I met a lot of my musical icons and heroes at the time because they came in, we rehearsed in one room for nine months and people came in and out of the other room and came in to watch us play. That's how I met the Kiss guys. That's uh, Foreigner and I met officially, and yet at the same time, I already knew Lou Graham from Black Sheep days way back when. Um, Aretha Franklin. Um, all these people came in to say, sing, sing for us. And we sang everything. Um, so Dick Clark came in. He was going to put money in the show, but he didn't. The head of uh, Walter Yetnikoff, the head of CBS Records at the time, he actually did invest in the show. Um, and actually got a 
publishing deal and an artist deal and a and a performing deal out of that, a management deal out of that, because he said to the guys, who manages that guy? And they went, we do. <laughs> Meanwhile, I wasn't managed by anybody, so they wooed me to sign with them as a, as, a, as an artist. I, nothing ever happened out of it. As a matter of fact, I, I was so frustrated because they kept me in the show. I waited one one New Year's, the option lapsed, and I said, okay, I'm, I'm out. I still did the show, but I was out. I was not being managed by them anymore. Um, so yeah, that's how it started. It was supposed to be something to to commemorate the Beatles. If you couldn't put a Beatle, Beatles back together, let's do a show about <laughs> them. And it evolved into my terminology was for a rockumentary. That's maybe been the first time that word was used. But I, I said um, it was about how the events of the 1960s in the U.S. and around the world affected the Beatles and their songwriting. Now the Beatles and their songwriting affected events in the world. So that's how it was uh, You mentioned something about being born left-handed learning to write yes. right-handed and then for this Beatlemania show being asked to go back to being left-handed. Where, where do you Correct. stand now? I am decidedly right-handed. Mm -hmm. uh, back then they, they got me this picture. You see the early Beatlemania commercials. You'll see me playing mm -hmm. lefty as well as righty actually, because when we filmed the commercials, I played those songs left-handed. I, they got me a lefty Hoffner, the $1.7 million production. They got me lefty Hoffner's righty written back. <laughs> Um, and I used to rehearse at, at SIR, but it was very easy to take the bass when you got tired of playing lefty and flip it over and play it upside down righty. You didn't even go reach for the right-handed bass. You just played upside, <laughs> upside down. Um, I played all the, you know, yesterday and and um, part of Illinois, whatever it was, right-handed on the ovation. People said to us, why did you use ovations? It's because we had the technology was better. Um, McCartney was using ovations by that point in time in 76 on all his wing shows and stuff like that. So it's not accurate. We, I should have had a Martin and it should have been upside down. It should have been whatever yeah. it was, but we didn't do that. It actually, also you could mic it. So trying to get an acoustic guitar and mic it in those days was yeah. a pain in the ass. And these undersaddle things came out. That was great. Um, so yeah, so we, I learned to play left-handed in Boston. I played about six shows left-handed and right-handed. Um, Confusing the hell out of me, because you. But what happens is you can't hit the strings if you're playing yeah. left-handed. You just get it. It's just, just a spaz. It's the strumming motion. It's not the fingering motion on the left hand. On the right hand, it's trying to hit the right string. So you stand there like a statue. Um, so I couldn't wait for the Rickenbacker songs, of which there was only six. But but it was. But I did, and then eventually the reviewers came on the right-handed nights and went, "Once you get past the fact that he's not left-handed, who cares?" Yeah. And that was the most gracious thing they said. So I said, I'm staying ready. And uh, it worked oh. for me. Plus, being born left-handed, I didn't want to go back to being left-handed. I knew I was going to have enough typecasting my entire life. And I did. So I stayed ready. Uh, I, I've had a couple of Beatle tribute guys on the show, and I always like to ask them these questions. You, you've probably yeah. played a lot with, um, you know, the Beatle instruments, the Hoffners, the Rickenbackers. What is right. your favorite Beatle guitar or Beatle bass to play? Like, which is the one that feels still, most comfortable to you? I still love playing the Hoffner. It is the most comfortable bass to play. And if it wasn't, I don't think McCartney would still be yeah. playing it, you know, as the primary instrument. Yes, it's his signature instrument, and he has a right to play it all the time he wants to. Uh, and when I play stuff without, that has, isn't with Beatle-oriented, I don't play a Hoffner. I mean, but it is the most comfortable bass to play. The Rickenbacker, actually, at one time, I loved playing it because we had those 4001s, which before the binding, before the yeah. shark fins, 
before the, and it was still in mono. And then they reissued them a few years back in 2016 as a 4003S. Um, and when I started getting those in the Sam Ash stores, I'm going, oh my God, it's like playing playing the bass okay. again. That bass is incredibly comfortable to Although, play, but the regular Rickenbacker is really not. What really frustrates me about a lot of these new Rickenbackers being made, and, well, yeah. you may have experience with them, with, you know, Sam Ash. Yeah. Um, I've Something yeah. that always bothers me is the pickups on the new Rickenbackers. Um, I don't like the way they look, the high gains or whatever they're called. And the neck pickup yeah, yeah. is too far away from the neck. It doesn't look like, you know, those 60s ones. They change. Guitar companies change designs sometimes to their own detriment. Well, Rickenbacker's um, the guitar company just... that probably hates making guitars the most. Because it takes yeah, three Yeah, well, John Hall has always been. Or something. Yeah. Uh, part of the problem is because he never upped his production. Yeah. It's still a small company. He was asked to to go it so they still have a small thing when they get caught up to speed you're only maybe eight or nine months away from getting one um but that's because because they still a very small operation he did not want it he's rather be in tahiti he'd rather be somewhere else is they don't want to expand the company to make it so the, the car the guitar has become a premium i can honestly tell you having worked in a music store they don't cost that much for us to buy the price to sell you because it's such a premium instrument the retailers are the ones that market up to twenty three hundred bucks, whatever it is. Only twenty three hundred. If I told oh, wow for a Rickenbacker, well maybe maybe in Canada oh, it's more, but whatever oh, it is in oh, the U.S. Guitars are so the US much more expensive. When I left, when I left in two thousand eighteen, they were only nineteen hundred bucks, or maybe maybe two thousand by then. Uh, two thousand eighteen. The thing is, you still waited, but there was that's how much it cost. I loved it when the reissue came out that. That mono one I was talking about, the yeah. S, it was only thirteen ninety nine or fourteen ninety nine. It went up to sixteen ninety nine, and for a mono, that, it's like twenty seven hundred um, here Canadian. Yeah, it, it makes yeah exactly, and it's probably down to twenty four ninety nine or twenty five ninety nine in the U.S. now because it's been about three or four years. Um, but Rickenbacker is not the ones that are selling it for that price. It's your retailer because they know what they yeah. have. Nobody has them, and we're going to sell them at a premium. I mean, occasionally I would do a deal for somebody and sell it for $500 off and it'd still make a huge profit for the company. And my ma my manager, would, my Sammy Ash would say, what are you, crazy? I'm going, but you want to sell these things? I don't do it to everybody. But, you know, the whole idea is to move the instrument. So if a guy wants 100 bucks off, what's wrong with that? You yourself told me one day when a kid and his father wanted to buy an Eric Clapton custom shop Strat, which back in 19, back in 2000. 10 cost $3,100 and guitar center was going to, going to sell it for three to this kid. And they wanted to buy it from me. And Sammy said, never let anybody walk over a hundred bucks. That's the way you should be doing business. If you can take a hundred bucks off of something and your profit is still ridiculous, what the hell's the difference taking a hundred bucks off? You know, how many Porsches do you need? You don't wear socks, Richard Ash. So how much do you really need the money? Never mind. Let's not get that. Let's not go there. <laughs> now now you've got me thinking about that's the Eric Clapton signature strat. Uh, yeah, that's probably forty three or forty four hundred dollars. I think the I think the uh I think the um the David Gilmore's are up in that range now also. But uh, but that it still costs more for the music company to buy, like a retailer to buy. The Rickenbackers, when I left, they were almost half price of what they were selling for. I mean and that is Industry green. To be fair, those Eric Clapton strats 
the the necks on those are so comfortable. I'm, I'm a big I'm a They're big amazing. fan of the V-shaped Strat necks. I've, yeah, I've yep, got a 1981 Tokai Springy Sound, which is their 57 Strat, and it's got the chunkiest right, right. V-shaped neck, and it's my baby, and I love it yeah. so much. That's fantastic. Tokai made some amazing guitars. Oh, I actually have a Tokai Rickenbacker uh, copy in my closet. It doesn't have a bridge right. on it, but... So, uh, <laughs> I'll have to get yeah, that fixed. Well, it, I mean... So, here's a question you probably haven't been asked. With the other original, the other the, the other three, Les Fradkin and uh, Justin McNeil, uh, right. in 1977, you performed on the uh, Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade on the roof yes, of the did. Winter Garden Theater doing a Magical Mystery That's Tour right. of Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Do you have any memories of that right. day? Yeah, it was a great day. I mean, uh, it actually wasn't. We didn't do it on the day of the parade. The parade we were just riding yeah. in the car down the down the parade. That stuff was done maybe two or three days before. Uh, we're overlooking Broadway. It was the daylight. Um, they had the playback going, and we're miming because you could couldn't play live at mm-hmm. back then. The only other time that that was done live was the Beatlemania movie, which released in 1980. One. 1980. One. We. Performed live on top of Radio City Music Halls, Marky. Over six thousand people uh, off of Sixth Avenue um, before the movie played, and we went out there and played. I, I used to keep that list on my Hofner, like McCartney's list on his Hofner, um, and that was totally live. And when I used to see the MTV shows where they're playing on the Marky, I did that already. Um, but that was an interesting. That's another story because I'm gonna. I'm actually gonna be pressed for time in a little bit. But that's another story. That premiere. We're at Radio City Musical. You see your face on a screen 120 feet across. You see your beard not line up with your sideburns, the theatrical beard on your face, and you have like a six-foot gap. It's hysterical. <laughs> but you're also watching the show, and you got Paul Stanley on one side and Gene Simmons on the other, and that's hysterical too, and the audience is going crazy because the Kiss guys went with me. To see the premiere. They were your dates for the show. They were my, mine and my wife's dates for the show. Exactly. Yeah. So which one got Paul and which one got Gene? We both we both went out. We all four of us went out together afterwards. I think we, it was it was a kind of an even thing back then. <laughs> um, so this this is something that I, you're in a really unique position here. How do you feel about your role as a pioneer in the realm of the Beatle tribute band? I am very proud of what I did in that show. I actually think I could have, you know, I think performance wise, I did the best I could. And as the years grew, as the years went on. I grew into the role better and better. When I first did that show, I was came from more of, even though I sang rock and roll stuff and free and bad company and stuff in the clubs and cactus and all this different sort of material, rasp, raspier voice. I had to clean it up to sing the Beatles stuff. Uh, I would lose my voice as the, as the week went on because it just was not used to singing that much and imitating a cleaner voice and stuff like that. I mean, um, it was the first time it was being done. Some of the other guys could do it, but they didn't have the looks. They didn't have whatever the show's producers wanted me to be the, the voice out there. If McCarty had not released Wings Over America and that voice for the first time, if the Beatles had not released Hollywood Bowl and those raspy voices for the first time, we probably would have had an issue. So I'll never remember when Brian Brawley, who was managing McCartney back then in 77, came to see the show and heard me sing. He came backstage and went, Oh my God, you sound just like him live. And I went, 
thank you. Because my voice was going by the end of the week. As I used to say, doing that show more and more and not having the understudy or the alternate person go on for me towards the end of the week, they kept me on for the for the, for the busy weeks. We did matinees on, on Wednesdays where the kids came from, the, from Long Island and they're screaming just like the Hollywood Bowl out. You would steal the ad-libs. Can you hear me? And they'd go even louder. I mean, we would, so it was an amazing time. But as I put it, in 1978, my voice finally caught up with my face. And I was able to sing any number of shows, any time a week, whatever it was. Um, because it was like doing the most amazing musical scales of your life. Instead of la 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 la, you're singing Beatles yeah. songs every night for two, for a year and a half. And eventually you're going to get it right as you do it. So it was, uh, I'm very proud of my role there, of what I did. And when I hear people tell me I started to play Beatle music because of you and not necessarily Paul McCartney, that is a huge compliment. Um, when I play with Greg Bissonette, who plays with Ringo, a few years ago we had a, su a surprise drummer on a gig that we did in Long Island, David Leon from the movie, Jimmy Poe from one of the premier Beatlemania bands. And we don't have a Ringo. And David says to me, guess who's going to be Ringo? And he says, uh, and he wouldn't tell me until the day before. And it's Greg Bissonette. And I'm a nervous fucking wreck. I'm going to be playing with Greg Bissonette. Meanwhile, he's up there in a white shirt and a tie. And he's got his notes up for the songs we're playing. And at the end, he gave me the compliment. Wow, you are an unbelievable bass player. So when I do the stuff like that and play with, with great players and then considered an equal, I think I did a really good job. But the biggest compliment is when somebody says, I learned to play bass because of you. I'm going, you've got to be kidding me. But it's, but it's great. It's I, I've only got a few more questions for you because I don't want to keep you too long. Fine. I'm good. I'm good. I just have to, I have to pick up the yeah. wife, folks. So that's more important. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. You, you've you met a few of the Beatles through this show. Uh, what were those yes. encounters like? Well, the first one is 1978. I'm in California. We're doing Beatlemania at night off. Um, there is a showcase going on at the Roxy. <laughs> Um, and it was two shows, two different shows. Uh, Stephen Bishop was was doing his first industry ever showcase. His album had just come out. Uh, on and on was the big song. Um, and I actually met Stephen in my doctor's office, throat doctor's office, uh, the very first time I went to get my throat checked and sprayed, whatever it was. And I met Stephen Bishop, and we became friends from that day forward. Uh, I also met Jimmy Stewart in the doctor's office. I mean, I'm, I go... I am not in Manhattan anymore. I'm in California. But the, he had a showcase, and my wife and I went, and I'm sitting at my table, and sitting next to me is Dan Hill. Sometimes when we touch, the honesty said he's, he was huge at that point. I was out there. He says, hi, I'm Dan. I said, hi, I'm Mitch. He says, you know, he's going to be sitting right behind you. He said, behind you. Go, no, he says, Ringo. This is Ringo's table behind you. So the lights come down. Nancy Andrews comes and says, you, hang on, I want to introduce you to Richie. She gets him from up the upstairs on the rocks. He comes down, goes to the table. I turn around, and she says, to him, "Richie, I want you to meet Mitch Weisman. He, Mitch Weisman, he plays Paul Beatlemania." And she, he says, "Well, I know the real one," and sits down, back to back for the entire show. People are taking pictures. I, to this day, I've never seen a picture of two of us together. Um, that from there, uh, but that's when I first met him. And I actually stole his napkin off of his table at the end of the night. My scrapbook, but that's the time I met Ringo. <laughs> Years later, when we were doing the Beatlemania movie, he talks about on the Phil Donahue show 
that when he's on with Barbara, that they asked him what you think of the show, and he said whatever he said. He actually said he didn't get paid royalties, but he did because John and Paul gave him royalties from all the songs they wrote, him and George, because they didn't write that much. So he got a percentage of the show because it was paid into ATV publishing. But he said, I found out on that show, I'm watching it on, in my hotel room before we filmed the movie in Long Beach. He says, I wanted that guy who played Paul in my television special, the Ogmere Rats television special in 1978. He says, but his managers didn't think it would be good for his career. I, I My jaw dropped and hit the floor and I stood up, what the, f because I had never been presented with that offer. And they were my managers. They were the show's producers. They didn't want to take me away from that show and give me any sort of career bigger than the show itself. Even though you're my managers, you'll make the money off of that also. So it was an interesting time. Uh, it's that Ringo. John was my neighbor. Um, really? I lived on 74th Street in Central Park. I lived on 74th Street in Central Park West. He lived on 72nd of Dakota. I would walk around my neighborhood. First time I ran into him, it was a snowstorm in 1978. Uh, they were aware of us, obviously, from the show. But I am walking out uh, to sum up, probably like a woman who goes out and curls and hopes you don't run into anybody you know. So, But I'm wearing my aviator glass prescription glasses. My hair is a mess. Definitely not beetly. Um, I'm wearing old pants and shit like that. I'm going to the, to the hardware store to buy some stuff to put up on the walls. I'm going to the supermarket to buy some groceries and as I come back up from my supermarket off 74th Street and Columbus Avenue here comes John and Yoga coming down Columbus Avenue and I'm walking up from the supermarket holding these this bag of groceries and and uh, shelving rods to put on my, <laughs> my wall and my and the glasses and the hair and I don't look I look like much like anything and I'm going to my head holy shit it's John Lennon in my head when I get to about the holy sh part this voice booms out well, good morning, Paul. How are you, Paul? Look, honey, it's Paul. And I'm going like, holy crap, he knows who I am. And, and I'm I had stepped off the curb. He and Yoko were coming towards me in fur coats and fur hats. It's winter. It just snowed the night before, so it's like a winter wonderland. Um, there was a third person who I think years later was I identified as Sam Havitoy, who became Yoko's companion afterwards. Um, and he pulls me out of the gutter and says to me, doesn't he look just like a Paul? It's, 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 he says, you know, he says, my 16-year-old saw the show and said, Dad, you don't look at it. The guy who plays you doesn't look anything like you. But you got to see the guy who plays Paul. He looks just like him. She goes, yeah, he does. And so he says to the other guy, you know, we should use him on this TV thing we're going to we're thinking of doing. I said, you know, I, I, I live down the block. He says to me, no, I'll know how to find you. He says, first of all, how do you do so many shows? I said, well, we have monitors and stuff. He says, no, it's got to be crazy. Because in his mind, the last thing he heard was yelling and screaming. <laughs> so that was not pleasant to perform yeah. under. And he said to me, one of the best jokes ever, he says to me, you know, you should form a band with four guys and a chick singer who don't look like anybody and call it Wings and Tour of the World. <laughs> and I said, to him, I, I said, I think it's been done. He said, no, no, you should do that. You should form a band with four guys, don't look like anyone, and a chick singer and call it Wings and Tour of the World. <laughs> And that's when he started telling me about the TV stuff, stuff like that. And he said, well, I know how to find you. And they start walking down the block on Columbus Avenue. And I turn around, and there isn't a single person in the street, which leads you to believe that I just imagine that. I mean, but they're still walking away. It's like it turned into a Jerry Lewis movement moment. of like, did you? So, and then I run down the street to my apartment, run up the five flights of stairs, and now I can't breathe, and it's Elvis and it's Lou Costello. 
My wife is like giving me sign language, telling me I'm trying to give her like clue or, or you know, trades what I'm trying to say. Uh, John Lennon, just she went nuts. And then that's when the first time I met him. Second time was in six months later in the summertime. I had come back from the, come back from a showtime from the theater on Broadway. And I always used to get off on 72nd Street and Columbus <laughs> Avenue. And I would always walk past Dakota into Columbus, into, oh, it's the 72nd Street and Central Park West. Walk, walk past Columbus Avenue, up to Columbus Avenue, walk up the block to the Pioneer Supermarket again to buy stuff for the house. Because I'd gotten my list in the payphone. Were you there. always hoping to uh, run into John? No, no, because after I'd done it the first time, I was like, holy crap. You, you do, but I didn't linger. Yeah. It's not like I, I stand there long enough, something will happen. So, but that was, so I'm, this one day I'm on that normal route to go home and he's out there signing orders for the kids and Yoko's off to the side. Um, this goes back to the politeness part. When you when you ask me how you're doing, I say, fine, how are you doing? So she's off to the side and people, the kids aren't talking to her. It's not a big crowd, just the hangers on outside the, the building, like the Apple yeah. scruffs outside of Apple. Um, and I see her, he's looking down, he doesn't see me. So I see her and she looks at me and I wave to her and she waves back and she smiles and she's, puts up the finger, hold on a second. She tugs on his arm. She points to me and he excuses himself from the kids. And he walks with me up the block towards Columbus and asks me, so how are you doing? You're still doing the show? Yeah, as I am. He said, you're still surviving it. I said, yeah, I'm still surviving it. He said to me, well, you know, it's good that you're doing it and stuff like that. As long as you're having a good time. Um, and it was a very short conversation. I can't remember much of the line other than that. <laughs> then he went back to the kids and I went, on my way. And then the next time we met was two weeks before the incident that took him from us. Um, I had just come off the road, a Beatlemania tour in 1980. Um, and it was Thanksgiving, Christmas break. So the company was on hiatus. I'd come home. I had just gone down to the theater to say hi to the guys that are still on Broadway. Um, I then took the bus back up and I'm walking. It's November. I'm walking or December, you know, it's November because it's two weeks before. I'm walking past the building and I just kind of smile to myself. There's no, there's kids out there, but I'd gone past the building. And as I get to the next building, which is the Olcott Hotel, which wasn't a hotel, it was a <laughs> residence. Um, here comes John and Yoko walking towards me. And I just listened to Double Fantasy the night before. I just read the Playboy article the night before. Joe Pecorino and I, and I, Joe Pecorino and I had listened to it in my apartment. Um, and they're, now they're coming towards me. And I am fine. Uh, I can tell you the history was I shook from head to toe the first time I met him. I shook from waist to toe the second time. Third, second time, third time I wasn't shaking at all. And I boom out, well, how are you kids? What's going on? And they go, hey, how are you? And she runs over and gives me a hug. Says, hey, we're suing you again. And we're like, <laughs> and I feigned like, oh my God, what are you suing me for? She's like, no, no, it's just a show. It's just me lawyers. We got these letters. This suing Beatlemania again. She says, how are you doing? And something that we turned around. And I said, you know, I listened to the Double Fantasy album. I said, I thought it was really, really good. I said, well, thank you, a lot of that. And I said, and I also read the Playboy article. He stops Yoko and I, so now we've turned around, walking back to the Dakota. And he stops Yoko and I, because he's, he's in the middle, and we're like looking at each other mm -hmm. past him, um, and smiling and laughing. And he stops us and says, oh, that's it. George is going to kill me. And, he and I said, what do you mean? He says, well, you know that part in the interview where I said he's just like the Apple Scruffs kids. You know, I didn't take him very seriously back then. Plus, he also was very annoyed with George for releasing yeah. I Me Mine. He doesn't mention John in the entire damn book. You know, and they wrote him, as you said in Playboy, I wrote him so he couldn't sing. We wrote him songs that stayed three notes, you know, whatever. Um, but, you know, so he was a little pissed at them. He said, but that's George going to kill me. He said, and then I've been walking some more. And I said, you know, I kind of agreed with you with that stuff about 
you said the Yoko was ahead of her time, like with the B-52s and those vocals? And he said to me, yeah, she was always ahead of her time with all that stuff. He imitates her. We both start laughing. He was a perfect Yoko impersonation, better than that. And we finally sit down in front of the stoop, uh, on the stoop across from the guard tower. Um, and he's talking to me. So you're still doing the show? I said, yeah. He says, he says, I, I, he says, I, that's got to be pretty amazing. I said, well, I'm trying to get out. I mean, you know, I do the shows and, and you know, and, and I'm on tour and I'm on the holidays. And he said, I can really feel for you. And I went like, well, what do you mean? He says, no, he says, it's, I said, the scale's a little bit different. He said to me, you know, I am trying to get out. He says, yeah, but I really can feel for you. He says, you know, you know, it doesn't really matter what scale it is. Once you're a Beatle, it's just as tough to get out. And then they we start. I smiled and laughed a little bit, and he laughed. And they invited me up for tea, and I didn't go. Um, because I figured this is going well now. I have new friends in the neighborhood. Everybody's, when he was recording Double Fantasy, Jack Douglas and I were friends from the Aerosmith days. And uh, Lee DiCarlo, the engineer, and I would see each other in clubs. And I'd say, Don't tell John, and I said hi. And he'd come back and say to me, it's amazing. He said to say hi to you. I mean, it's like... Uh, it's. I had this reputation. I, I remember sending people to say hi to Billy Joel for me, and uh, the guy he was working on Stormfront, and and I last time I'd seen Billy or even spoken to him, I think it was in, in Pittsburgh after one of his concerts. Um, I had just gone backstage and he was closing up. I got there when the show was over. <laughs> Back then, um, I ended up. He said the guy comes up to me and says to me, "Who are you?" I said, "What are you talking about?" He says, "I've said hello to Billy from like fifty different people over the time I've been with him. Not once has he ever known who anybody is. He was you. His face lit up. He said, "Oh my God, Mitch Westman, how's he doing? Have him come down." So I went to the sessions, recording sessions on Surfer. But that was the great thing about John. He said, "You want to come up?" I said, "No, I figure." My time is good. We know each other. We're passing messages between friends. We're cordial in the streets now. This is going well. Sure enough, two weeks later, that was him. People say to me, "What? Why didn't you go up?" I said, "Because I just spent 25 minutes talking with him, or maybe more, and that's mm -hmm. enough." I'm ready. What am I going to do when I go upstairs? It'd be a fucking mental case, sort of. <laughs> you know, a next time too close I'm to comfortable. Yeah, it's like you know what happens when I go up there. It's like, I, you know. So what? But it was great. It was. They were very, very nice. Yoko. Years later, Sean and I have spoken a, a little bit through, through. Uh, Mark Ronson, the mm -hmm. producer. Uh, back then, he was just a kid. He is his friends were, were Sean and stuff like that. And I used to call Mick Jones's house, his, his stepdad, and say, "Come down to Pro Jam tonight, the China Club." And he thought I said Pearl Jam. So he got he got Sean to come down, and they said, "Where's Pearl Jam?" I said, "It's not Pearl Jam, it's Pro Jam." And I had Sean and the other two friends go, "Let's say this all to Mark all together, go boys, Pro Jam, Pro Jam." They, they, they everybody started laughing. Well. Later, there was a pharmacy on 72nd Street. The pharmacist was friends of mine. He had no famous people up on the wall yet. So he had the clock, and next to the picture, the clock was me. And next to, on the other side of the picture was, was Mary Tyler Moore. And then the wall started filling up. And on the wall, not even in prominent position because there were so many pictures up there, there's Sean and Yoko sending a Christmas card. And he told me that when they came in and saw the picture, oh, that's the guy, from, that's Mitch from Beatlemania. Did you recognize him, Sean? But he was still a kid then. So my legend looms large. Your <laughs> legend does loom large. And I, I want to ask you one last personal question. What do the Beatles mean to yes, you? Yes, because then I got to go. Yep. The Beatles mean a lot to me. What they mean to me is great music, great example of how bands can bond together and get through almost anything. Um, they changed a lot of things in all of our lives. 
their impact is still felt today through every generation, yours included. Um, they were one of a kind. And I don't know if we'll ever see anything like that again. Um, there are other groups that were monumental, and maybe Zeppelin, maybe stuff like that, but it didn't affect it in that way. Uh, Cobain reached a lot of people back then, the, that generational stuff. The, the Beatles just transcend a lot of stuff. And they were a pivotal point in musical and cultural history. I, I couldn't have said it better. <laughs> <laughs> my pleasure. Now, Mitch, it's, Ethan, it's my it favorite great, part of the great show. Talking I get to turn to it over to you. Is there anything you would like to plug? Um, I don't have anything to plug right now. I'd like people to stay safe, stay, wear your masks. You're plugging do the it CDC until right now. now. Yeah, I'm, pl I'm plugging actually what people should just do for yeah. themselves. Protect each other. Um, I'm not about politics. It's not about that stuff. If you notice in the news today, Fauci actually just said, maybe we should all be wearing goggles. I don't know if it's going to go that far. I mean, because the, it's not abating. Nothing's abating. Every time we do an open air something somewhere, the rate goes up all over the place. Um, I think the only thing we can say is while we were wearing the mask, as uncomfortable as it is, things started spiking when you start taking them off. Um, who knows, folks? Just stay safe. That's all I can ask every one of you out there to stay safe, take care of each other, and at the same time, call everybody you know, but you never know when you're going to see them again. And I'll just reiterate, everyone out there, stay safe. And you know what? Thanks for listening. You can go home now. Dance of Alarm is produced by Ethan Alexander. Additional voiceovers by Richard Foote. This has been a Showtime production.